1: Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I am professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Shana Schiffrin. Her new book is titled Speech Matters on Lying, Morality, and the Law. It's just been published by Princeton University Press. Schifrin is professor of philosophy and Pete Cameron Professor of Law and Social Justice at the University of California, Los Angeles. That lying is morally prohibited is generally accepted. But theorists divide over the nature of lying's wrongness, and thus there's disagreement over when the prohibition might be outweighed by competing moral interests. There's also widespread agreement over the idea that promises made under conditions of coercion or duress lack the moral force to create obligations. Finally, although free speech is widely seen as a primary value and a right, there is wide debate over the kind of good that free speech is. Some say the value of free speech lies in the importance of allowing speakers to express themselves Others contend that its value lies in the effect speech has on audiences, and still others think that the value of free speech consists in its contribution to the collective search for truth. Now, in Speech Matters, Shana Schifrin advances powerful arguments for a novel and systematic view about lying, promises under duress, and free speech. The result is a fascinating, unified vision of the central role that sincerity and truthfulness play in our individual and collective moral lives. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Shauna Shifrin. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today?
0: I'm terrific, thanks.
1: Well, thank you for joining us on New Books and Philosophy.
0: Thank you for having me. It's really nice to have the opportunity.
1: And thank you, listeners, for joining us for the podcast. Today, my guest is Shauna Shifrin and we'll be discussing her fabulous new book titled Speech Matters on Lying, Morality, and the Law. Now, this book is really fascinating, and I highly recommend it. I think one of its strengths is the way in which it weaves together deep philosophical analyses of important moral phenomena, such as lying, deceiving, free speaking, and such, with subtle engagements with the law and with legal scholarship. Moreover, at the heart of the book is a novel, I think, important defense of free speech. Um, so there's a lot to talk about here. Um, we're going to try to get to it all. But first, um, we'll begin where we usually do, that is with the author. Uh, Shauna, please tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Uh, I'm a professor of law and a professor of philosophy at UCLA. I've spent most of my career at UCLA. I started teaching here in 1992 I um, am a product of the University of California. I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, uh, where I majored in philosophy, and I uh, did my graduate degree at Oxford and my law degree at Harvard. Uh, And my research primarily concerns the social conditions of individual autonomy and moral agency, and I explore that theme uh, in a number of different venues. I write in moral philosophy and in political philosophy, in legal philosophy, and on some doctrinal issues about law. Uh, and in law, I work mostly in contracts and freedom of speech, but I'm also interested in in torts and intellectual property and areas of family law that bear on uh, the social environment in which individual autonomy can develop and flourish.
1: Well, excellent. Um, can you tell us a little book, a little bit, just to start now about um, how y- you came to write this book? Because I-, I see just from your description that this book pulls together a lot of those interests.
0: So the book is partly a work in moral philosophy, partly a work in political philosophy, and partly a work of in law, uh, legal, both legal doctrine and legal philosophy, um, and it arose out of. Uh, Uh, some thinking I was doing in a variety of these different areas, I was struck by the intersection of four themes that I thought were underexplored in both the moral literature and in the legal literature. Um, One of them is the degree to which our moral development and moral agency relies on other people, uh, even past childhood. Um, And that others' contributions to our moral agency and our moral development often take the form and sometimes have to take the form of speech. To the extent that morality requires that we be responsive to the mental contents of other people, to their beliefs or their emotions or their motives uh, or their needs, we're often dependent on other people's sincere testimony of their experiences in order to understand how we have to interact with them. Um, Because we can't read each other's minds, we're very dependent on sincere reports of other people in order to develop and exercise our moral agency. And so that led second uh, to the realization that the dependence of morality on reliable communication made it clear to me that there are many parallels between arguments for freedom of speech that emphasize outlets for thought and for engagement between uh, people about their thoughts and beliefs and emotions, and what I think the best arguments against lying are. And the common ground shared by arguments for freedom of speech and against lying, uh, I thought was pretty fertile ground that hadn't been well explored explicitly, um, and so my interest in the relationship between communication and morality connected to some trends that I think became more explicit after 9-11. Um, after 9-11, I think you saw a more explicit appeal to arguments about emergencies and exigency as grounds for creating exceptions to moral norms and to legal norms. So those appeals to emergency exceptions became ubiquitous in the arguments for torture, for preventative detention, for spying. And my dissatisfaction with how those arguments went reminded me of my dissatisfaction or unease with how appeals to exigency have been made in the literature about lying um, and about promises under duress. Uh, And so... Uh, I thought it was worth returning to some of the everyday cases of everyday behaviors of truthful communication to try to figure out how emergency thinking does or does not excuse exceptions from standard moral norms. And this connected to kind of a fourth cultural trend that I think uh, you see in the criminal justice system uh, that has also, I think, become more exaggerated uh, perhaps in the last 25 years. Um, the criminal justice system, our post-9-11 approach to security, for me, seemed to occupy uh, or involve an approach of excessive penalization and segregation of dangerous people um, rather than an inquiry about how could we repair the situation, how can we take measures to reintegrate wrongdoers into the moral community. Uh, and while obviously we have to protect ourselves, uh, I think it's worth asking how can we do so without permanently isolating ourselves uh, from wrongdoers or permanently isolating wrongdoers from ourselves. And this led me to think that uh, it was worthwhile talking about what the necessary conditions are for preserving the opportunity for moral reconciliation. And I think one crucial necessary condition is preserving the reliability of speech and its believability. And that connects us back to issues about lying. So those are kind of the four, I think, underlying themes of the book that motivated me to write about uh, the relationship between lying and freedom of speech.
1: Well, excellent. And and now let me ask sort of a broader methodological question, given uh, uh, how you just described the the motivations and some of the um, uh, concerns that uh, drove you to to write this book. It seems that uh, part of what's sort of implicit in in what you just said is uh, a view that um, it's um, part of the purpose of our laws and our legal institutions to uh, help us – Uh, realize certain kinds of moral ends, or maybe that um, it's part of our laws, part of the purpose of our laws and our legal institutions to realize certain kinds of moral ends. Um, Is that a broader commitment on your part to a certain conception of the connection between law and morality? Yes.
0: I don't think uh, that the purpose of law is to make us virtuous people or to ensure our virtue. But I do think that a major function of law uh, is to make it possible that we can have the opportunity to be moral agents who relate to one another uh, with respect. And in order to become moral agents and to respect the autonomy and interests and welfare of others, our moral characters uh, have to develop. And we all have a role to play in doing that, not just family and friends, uh, but the entire community has a role in doing that. And law can provide both the opportunities uh, that allow people to develop in this way. Think about the education system or the provision of material needs, which allow people to develop their mental capacities and their sympathetic capacities rather than focusing only on serving their material needs. Uh, The education system, I think, teaches people about relevant concepts and methods of relating to other people that show equal respect for others um, and providing the kinds of background security and assurances that both give guidance to people about how to behave and respect each other's rights and interests. Uh, but, also, provide them some security that if there's a transgression, there'll be a, a reaction from the community. All of those are moral interests and values that I think drive a lot of the architecture of law and do so appropriately
1: all right um, can, just one more question um, again as a as a um, an amateur at best um, uh, sort of spectator in uh, debates in philosophy of law and in legal theory um, is the view that law and morality are connected in the way that you just laid out is this a is this a um, um, is this a mainstream view or is it um, uh, one among many contenders? Or um, I remember learning philosophy of law uh, from uh, a legal positivist, and mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I don't know whether that's still a, a prominent um, uh, approach uh, uh, in the field.
0: Legal positivism is a prominent approach in the field, Um, and it's true that I'm not a legal positivist, (laughs) but I'm not sure that anything I say in this book uh, is incompatible with legal positivism. Um, So most of the book is dedicated to giving arguments about why our freedom of speech regime should take a certain form. And... Positivists can accept that and think that uh, those kinds of arguments should play a role in what laws we adopt uh, and perhaps in um, how to interpret uh, those laws we have adopted that already have within them moral commitments. Mm-hmm. Um, those who are non-positivists may go further than that along with me uh, and think that all laws already contains within it some kind of prompt for moral interpretation. Uh, And in that light, I'm giving a variety of the arguments that might help illuminate the interpretation of the law we already have or the commitments we already have to freedom of speech. So I think what register you take the arguments in might differ depending on whether you're a positivist or a non-positivist. And certainly, I'm inclined to think uh, that morality infuses law more directly than many positivists view do, but positivists, of course, have to think about what values should inform the laws that we positively adopt. And so many of the arguments I give are fully compatible with their methodology.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Um, so let's turn now to the book, um, and, um, the book follows, um, in a way, sort of the roadmap you, you spelled out about these, uh, these four kinds of concerns. Um, and the first on the docket then, uh, is the, the, uh, the issue about lying as such. And so, uh, the book begins then, uh, with an analysis of the moral, the moral prohibition on lying. Um, and you proceed largely by way of t- taking what strikes me as a fresh look, um, on a famous case from Immanuel Kant about uh, a murderer who shows up at uh, your door. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that famous Kant case and your analysis of it?
0: Sure. So the famous case is one in which we're to imagine um, that uh, a murderer appears at your door uh, and demands to know the location of his intended victim. Uh, And Kant famously seems to have averred that you may not lie to this person, even though he's intending to engage in terrific evil. Um, As some Kantian scholars have pointed out, that's probably not a full interpretation of what Kant was actually saying. Um, He's probably thinking uh, more about a public official appearing at your door uh and he's probably exploring the question of whether you can lie to a public official, and we may think that the relationship you have to your government and the duty of truth-telling you have to your government is a little different than the duty that you might have to a common criminal. Um But I put that issue about interpretation aside and confront the case that most people think about, which is the case of... uh a murderer uh, who does not have state status coming to your door and demanding to know the location of your victim and whether it's permissible to lie to that person. And many Kantians are anxious to sort of rescue Kant from what's thought to be an outrageous mistake in saying that you couldn't ever lie uh, to the murderer at the door. Of course you should be able to. And many of those accounts have focused on the idea that the murder at the door is in some way threatening you or misusing you or that uh, he is in some way abusing the standards of communication. And if he's abusing the standards of communication, then you don't owe him truthfulness in return. Mm-hmm. And mm, I'm actually not attempting to give a straightforward interpretation of Kant, uh, although I think there's some reasons to question that that can really be the source of his view, uh, partly because he goes out of his way to say it's not because uh, you can't always falsify to a person who has no right to the truth that they're demanding from you. But the other reason why I'm a little dissatisfied with a kind of self-defense account of lying to the murderer at the door, the idea that he's threatening you in some way or he's failing to observe the rules and so you don't have to observe the rules with respect to him, is I think that makes the relationship too focused on the murderer at the door and you, the person who's accosted by him. One problem I have with that is it seems to me that not only is it permissible for the person who opens to the door to falsify and misrepresent the location of the victim, I think it's permissible for the neighbor to do so. Mm-hmm. The neighbor's not accosted by the murder at the door, but I think a neighbor who listens to this could stick her head out the window and misrepresent to the murderer at the door where the victim is uh, in order to attempt to obstruct the success of the murderer's plans. And the way that I would prefer to explain the permission to misrepresent here is by making reference to this idea of a justified suspended context. The idea of a suspended context for me is one uh, in which we have a context of communication that serves moral purposes that suspends the presumption of truthfulness. It's quite important in most kinds of communications that we represent our beliefs to each other sincerely. Uh, for the reasons that I stated a few minutes ago, it's quite essential to our ability to interact with one another morally and to understand and know one another uh, and to cooperate in a variety of the complex sort of moral and pragmatic projects that we have together that we understand what's on people's minds, uh, and they convey what's on their minds with sincerity. But in some contexts, like the context of plays or jokes or novels, we achieve other significant purposes by suspending the presumption of truthfulness or the presumption of sincerity. So when you go and see a play, you don't expect the actors on the stage who are uttering their lines to be conveying what they think or what they believe, you understand that they're engaged in pretense, and the creation of fiction and the consumption of fiction, whether in novels or in plays or in films, permits us to engage in imagination and play, the exploration of alternatives, sometimes to confront difficult situations uh, and understand their moral significance without actually creating them in reality. There are a lot of moral purposes we can achieve through suspended context. What's interesting and important about them is parties have reason to know that they're in such suspended contexts, and not to take the statements that are made by people in them as sincere or reliable warrants of what's on their mind. And the argument I want to make about the murder at the door is that when someone is engaged in a project to pursue evil, that creates a suspended context with respect to propositions that would further his evil end. Hmm. So a murderer at the door can't expect you to give him truthful information about where a victim is because that would be complicit in furthering his evil end or would contribute to his evil end. And he has reason to know he's contributing or pursuing an evil end. So he has reason to know that with respect to that information, he's in a suspended context and that you don't have to give truthful representations of that information to him. And one of the reasons I prefer this account, which would explain both why the murderer at your door, uh, why you can misrepresent, and why the neighbor can misrepresent, is that it's what I call a content-based justification for the misrepresentation. Um, You can misrepresent about information that would further his ability to commit the crime, that would amount to complicity, um, because no moral agent can expect truthful cooperation that would allow you to complete an evil end. What bothers me about self-defense accounts or other kinds of defensive accounts Um, is not only that they don't handle the murderer next door that well, Mm -hmm. but they also seem to me to be overbroad. So if we should just think the murderer at the door is someone who is never entitled to our truthful communication, that would justify a much wider range of misrepresentations than I think could be morally apt. Uh, So if he's not entitled to our moral cooperation in communication, it would seem we could lie to him about his medical needs or his legal needs or whether his sister is in trouble. Um, But that wide range of misrepresentations uh, doesn't seem to me to be justified, although these other accounts are in danger of justifying them. And these kinds of misrepresentations also place in jeopardy our ability to create a better relationship with the wrongdoer and attempts to bring him back into moral community with us. If everything we say to him might be a misrepresentation, he has no reason to trust us whatsoever epistemically. Uh, and this then places us and him in isolation from one another. And one of the interests of my book is how we can preserve the opportunity for meaningful reintegration uh, with wrongdoers, which I think requires relationships uh, and trust. Um, but if we take the view that when someone engages in wrongdoing, they've somehow exempted themselves from standard moral treatment, I think it makes it almost impossible to reintegrate them into the moral community because I don't think that anyone can sustain their membership in the moral community alone and without help.
1: Right. So let me just ask a, a quick follow up, um well I hope a quick follow up, um about the suspended context uh uh or your appeal to the idea of a suspended context. If the murderer at the door asks me where the intended victim is, and um you know I lie and say um you know he's hiding in, under the car um or he's left town or whatever, um if the murderer then asks have you just told me the truth Um, that is asks about whether what I just told him about the location of his intended victim is the truth. Do I get to lie about that?
0: Um, I think it depends. I think it's uh, you start to get into a more delicate situation there. So Mm -hmm. when the murderer at the door demands to know, are you telling the truth? I think the defensive accounts are probably correct that if you are, being threatened by someone, uh, someone you believe is willing to advert to violence to achieve his ends, and he's demanding to know uh, whether you've invoked a suspended context that he wishes you not to, it's not clear to me that you have to represent truthfully. But I would distinguish that between the case in which you yourself volunteer that you are telling the truth, that you are not misrepresenting, that you do not regard this as a suspended context when you volunteer it or initiate the idea that we are in a non-suspended truthful context with one another, then I think you are in moral danger when you misrepresent. Because if we are to allow these kinds of fluid forms of communication with one another, in which we're attempting to preserve the reliability of sincere communications uh, while also allowing ourselves to sometimes invoke the suspension of that presumption in suspended context, it's quite vital that we always be able to exit from suspended context and underscore that now we're actually telling each other how things are. Because we don't have access to each other's minds and we can't read each other's minds, the only way we can really know with any precision what's on someone's mind is if they tell us sincerely. And if we start to proclaim affirmatively not under threat that we are making sincere representations but that's not in fact true there's no other reason anyone should have then to believe you we kind of destroy our ability to relate to one another sincerely on the basis of trust so I argue that positive invocations that you're not in a suspended context Uh, that you are actually relating your own sincere beliefs. Misrepresentations of that uh, seem to me to be wrong because they start to completely erode the fabric of trust, which is, in a way, the foundation on which all other forms of trust are built. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in that respect, I think Kant was right Uh, in his strongest proclamation that there can be something wrong with lying to the murder at the door. Uh, If you misrepresent something that has nothing to do with his evil end, I think you can go wrong. And if you misrepresent that you are speaking sincerely and the presumption of truthfulness applies to you and you affirmatively make that claim, but you're misrepresenting, then I think you also do wrong uh, because that misrepresentation erodes or undermines the foundations of the most minimal forms of trust.
1: Excellent. Um, that's, that's very helpful and intriguing. Um, let me, I have another thought, but let me move on because, um, I want to make sure that we, we, we get to talk about all the great stuff that's in the book. Um, so, um, in chapter two now, um. You build on this concept so part of the wrong of lying is that um you know we have to rely on each other and we don't have this kind of access to each other's uh thoughts and um uh, uh, internal stuff and so um truth telling is uh, is is a way to 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 or the norm of truth telling is a way to ensure that we are able to to, to do well by each other and to be a moral agents. um uh So you take up the question then in Chapter 2 about whether um, certain kinds of of moral acts, particularly sort of speech acts that perform moral things like promising, um, whether the performance of a promise, for example, under duress tends to um, uh, erase or or undermine um, the moral act uh, of of the promise. Um, uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that? that part of the book? Sure.
0: So in the second chapter of the book, I uh, examine the common idea that promises made under duress have no moral force. Mm -hmm. And I'm unconvinced of this idea once we make a distinction between scripted promises and initiated promises. So a scripted promise is uh, a promise that, say, the robber forces you to articulate, right? Don't call the police or I'll hurt you. Promise me you won't call the police. And now you've been scripted what to say. And you say it. And I'm with those who think that promises made under duress that have a scripted quality don't have much moral force. They're not an expression of your will, Uh and they're just one of the manifestations of the robber's uh, coercion or threat over you. But if we distinguish those from other cases in which someone who's under threat or duress initiates a promise, so begins to negotiate with the robber, please don't take my wallet, uh, I need the money to get home, but you know I'll give you this bracelet and I won't report it to the police, uh, or when you know the robber, and I won't tell your family members you did this. When you initiate that promise as your effort to negotiate your way out of the situation on terms that are preferable to you, I think those promises do have moral force, even though the duress you're under is wrong and the robber should be penalized and condemned and criticized. I nevertheless think the promise that you make when you initiate the promise may have moral force. And what I try to point out in this chapter is that initiated promises of this kind uh, can play a very important moral role uh, for both the robber and for the person under coercion. So when you initiate a promise under duress um, and you negotiate your way out of duress, three pretty important things happen that are quite different from the standard case people consider of having your promise scripted by the robber. When you initiate a promise, so you say, please don't take my wallet, but take this bracelet instead and I'll promise not to call the police. um, Your initiated promise and its acceptance by the robber um, advance your interests as you understand them. You as a victim have had a partial authorship role in the resolution of a moral conflict, whereas when you're merely subject to coercion or duress or your promise is scripted, you had no authorship role. So one important feature of an initiated promise is that you, the victim, have an authorship role in the resolution of a conflict. The second important feature is that the person exerting coercion or duress acknowledges your own Uh, account and articulation of your interests, Hmm. right? So he listens to them and he accepts them as having weight in the resolution of the conflict. That already marks a form of moral progress. Both of these features mark a form of moral progress over where we begin in the initial confrontation of a mugger and his victim. And finally, when you keep the promise, you establish that... You, the victim, can be trusted, even though you've been victimized, and that the robber is still an important object uh, or subject or recipient of trust-based action, of honor and fidelity, even though he's transgressed some moral norms. And the basic argument of the chapter is that if we are, to attempt to maintain relationships with people who are engaged in wrongful action and have the wrong understanding or the wrong agential posture toward morality, um, that we'll have to do so through a variety of forms of human connection, that being segregated from wrongdoers won't help them make moral progress, Um, just trying to persuade them by giving them arguments is unlikely, in any short-term way to help them make moral progress, but that having human connections of, of trust is an essential part of ha- helping people grow morally, uh, recognize what their moral commitment should be, and attempt to meet them. And that forging connections of this kind through transactions like accepted negotiations is a way both to make the resolution of the immediate moral conflict more acceptable to victims. Uh, as well as establishing the kind of relationships that could lead to moral progress on the part of the wrongdoer. And what I argue is not that you always have to engage in these negotiations if you're the subject of coercion or duress, but that if you invoke this moral vehicle or mechanism, that it would be wrong for you to then undercut it by making the promises initiation unreliable. And so in this way, the argument parallels the argument I make about uh, lying, that it's an important form of communication that plays a role in facilitating moral progress, and we shouldn't sully uh, or taint its force by using it uh, in a way that undercuts its reliability
1: right, so let me ask uh, a more general ask you to speak more generally about this conception of moral progress because that is sort of what drives uh uh that account in a way you're you're right of course that it's connected to um uh, the, the thoughts driving the um the your analysis of lying and that we have this shared resource that we have to keep in place uh with respect um you know the sustaining trust um do we also have, or it seems to me on your view that we also have this um, sort of duty, as it were, to um, morally aid each other in in um, uh, developing our moral powers? Is this is if that's one way to put it?
0: Yeah, I think that that's right that we we do. I don't think that people, uh, even though morality may be a priori, uh, it you know like mathematical a priori truths are pretty hard for any one single person to apprehend by themselves, on their own. Uh, And given the involvement of character and the emotions and moral behavior, maintaining a character uh, against a variety of forms of error, mistake, um, contrary, interests, temptations, uh, I I think does require the support and help of other people. Uh, So we develop our characters uh, in... Uh, relationship to other people and hence we need their help and they need our help in order to both apprehend moral truths and also maintain their characters uh, sufficiently to be able to abide by them. And all that, of course, assumes that we have a background environment that makes it possible for people uh, to do this without being in terrible material trouble. And so, of course, a variety of forms of the implementation of justice that allow people to be materially secure also play a role in facilitating moral agency. And that's one of the arguments, I think, for ensuring that together uh, we implement demands of justice.
1: Mm Um well we're going to come back to 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 uh uh to, to to this to this kind of thought uh in a moment when when we we get to talk about the reasons why um you think one might um be required to, as it were, accommodate certain kinds of wrongdoing. Um, but before we go there, um, let's, I want to make sure that we have, we, we, we get to talk about, um, uh, your conception of free speech, which is connected to the, the, the two parts of the puzzle that we've already put on the table. So you advocate, um, what you call a thinker-based approach, uh, to free speech, which I take it is, um, supposed to stand in contrast uh, to um what we might think of as sort of familiar conceptions of sort of hearer based and speaker based and maybe even marketplace based uh, uh, kinds of conceptions um, maybe uh you could tell us a little bit about this and um sort of highlight some of the contrasts with some of the more familiar you know thoughts that we might have if we read John Stuart Mill recently. Sure.
0: Um, So the the thrust of my view about freedom of speech is that we don't really need to distinguish between speaker based theories and listener based theories, Uh, that the underlying uh, interest uh, really captures both uh, and the strengths of both approaches, Uh, namely that we should think about what it would take for someone to have freedom of thought and to develop as a thinker and my view uh which is consonant with some of the uh arguments i've just been articulating um, is that in order to develop your thoughts including your moral character and your moral ideas you need to be able to externalize your mental content uh so you need to be able to uh tell others who you are and what your thoughts are so that you can be understood and taken seriously as a moral subject. You need to be able to externalize your mental content often to understand yourself. Uh, Many people find the maelstrom of the uh, interior of the mental uh, chaotic uh, and the ability to externalize it, write journals, uh, organize their thoughts to tell others is a way they find out about themselves. But also you need to be able to externalize your con- your mental content uh, so that you can learn from others and have your mistakes corrected or have your thoughts supplemented or complemented by the ideas of others. Uh, and in order for us to engage in democracy. Uh, in which we're supposed to be responsive to the ideas, thoughts, beliefs, and convictions of others. We have to know what everyone else thinks. We couldn't possibly be responsive to them and act jointly and democratically unless we were all able to externalize our mental content, find out what others think, adjust our thoughts and relations to others, and take action on their basis. Uh, and so the argument is that really if you start from the standpoint of what the needs of an individual thinker would be to fully become herself and to interact with others who are also enabled to fully become themselves, uh, that the focus should really be on the needs of a thinker and not just the needs of a speaker independent of having an audience or the needs of an audience which may be met by one or two speakers rather than every person because many people may say repetitive things. And so both speaker-based theories and listener-based theories, I think, uh, ignore too much what the relationship is between speakers and listeners. But a thinker-based theory captures both because we're both speakers and listeners in, uh, as thinkers and in speech relationships.
1: And does the? do you think also that the thinker-based view um, does a better job at giving a unified view of the value of... Um, uh, free expression, even in cases when we're not talking particularly about speech or about sort of media that convey definite messages like art and um, uh, other kinds of activities.
0: I do. And thanks for for reminding me to uh, <laughs> make that point um, a lot of. Theories of freedom of speech, including truth-based theories of freedom of speech, which some people interpret Mill as uh, promoting, and I certainly think that was an element Mm -hmm. of his theory, uh, are very focused on propositional content and have a difficult time explaining why we might protect art or music. Um, Democracy-based theories also have this problem. They're so focused on what the components would be that would assist democratic deliberation that they have a very strained relationship to the protection of art and music uh, and other forms of non-discursive expression um, that don't have a direct relationship to propositions under consideration in voting contexts. Now, often those theories can indirectly explain how art may trigger political understanding or music may serve as a form of protest. But a thinker based theory, I think, is a more direct explanation of why it seems as fundamental that we protect art and music uh, as a variety of forms of political expression, and also why we protect interpersonal communication. Uh, things as kind of quotidian as um, the strength of your, you know, lentil pilaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the argument I want to make is that all of these uh, forms of communication are externalizations of your mental content of what's in your mind and um, the ability to externalize your mental content and have it recognized and understood both by yourself and by others gives you some distance from that content to decide whether to endorse it as yours or whether it's just kind of the flotsam in your in your mind uh, that isn't a part of what you endorse. Um, but I think it's also a crucial aspect of sanity uh, and the ability to forge interpersonal relations. And one of the arguments I make in the chapter on lying and in the chapter on freedom of speech is to point out that um, people who are unable to externalize their mental content uh, are in a form of solitary isolation
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and solitary confinement is a uh, sort of the building block of insanity, uh, or a way in which people become insane when they're cut off from the ability to distance themselves from their thoughts, the ability to get input from others. And you can become isolated in a variety of ways. It's one thing we do to prisoners in a variety of United States jails. Uh, and the level of mental illness is very high. We cut them off from interaction and communication with others. It can also be done by denying people access to freedom of speech um, and the ability to say what's on their minds and understand whether they have agreements and relationships with others with respect to that content or disagreements, the ability to evolve in response to reactions. And I think it can also be done uh, by lying to people. Um, because then they are cut off uh, from any form of direct engagement with you and what's on your mind. Uh, And if we take the view that you can lie to wrongdoers or you can isolate wrongdoers, we deprive them of the moral and mental benefits of communicative relations with others.
1: Good. Let me pick up on that um, because uh, one of the implications, it seems of this thinker-based uh, approach to free speech and the way in which you just connected it up with, um, uh, the previous, uh, uh analysis, uh, in the first chapter on, on lying, um, uh, is, is the, well, the implication seems to be that, um, uh, lies uh, are, or, or raise a kind of, um, moral threat maybe, we might say, um, that, um, might not be visible, uh, to, I- unless this thinker-based view is, is, uh, is, is, is in view. Um, that is that if part of the value of free speech is this, what we might say, sort of cognitive or epistemic, uh, uh value, um, then it looks as if lies, uh, uh are very dangerous in a certain way, uh, uh, from the point of view of free speech, to the point where um, you 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 discuss uh, in, in the, the chapter after the free speech one the possibility of 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 um, doing more to regulate lying. Um, can you tell us about that?
0: Sure. Um, so the argument that I give for freedom of speech, right, is this kind of argument about the ability to develop both. As a thinker and in relation with other thinkers through externalizing your actual mental contents, what you actually think. Uh, and the moral relationships and the moral values associated with that come from uh, transmitting what is in fact on your mind. Um, and so that argument doesn't really give any support to uh, a kind of popular idea uh, that regulations on lying violate freedom of speech. In my view, they have very little to do with uh, freedom of speech because lying is not an exercise of freedom of speech, uh, nor does it really engage with the underlying values of freedom of speech. To the contrary, uh, when people lie – they render the warrants that they're giving to others unreliable and untrustworthy. They're kind of cutting off or blocking a path to themselves um, because what they're suggesting is on their minds is not in fact on their minds. And we have no reason to take what they say seriously as a representation of their mental contents. And if it becomes or were to be a permissible rule, of interaction with people that you could misrepresent what was on your mind, um, then none of us would have warrants for taking seriously what other people say. And that would undercut all of the significant and foundational values that sincere communication promotes. And so my suggestion is that lying is uh, not only an insult to the person uh, who is the recipient of the lie, and not only isolates the liar from those he is attempting to interact with uh, because he's not in fact exposing who he is or what his beliefs are, uh, but it also undercuts the reliability of warrants that we all have, and hence it's a a threat to the public interest.
1: And so um, uh, lying then, or the the regulation of the legal prohibition on it, on this view doesn't raise the kind of free speech worries that um, maybe even the other views uh, try to identify.
0: Yeah. Um, so if I, I guess my argument that lying doesn't really, uh, or regulations online don't really threaten freedom of speech has two grounds to it. Um, one is that the arguments for freedom of speech uh, that I, that are in, you know, the account I give about the significance of of developing as a thinker and through social interaction, uh, and also I think in Mill's arguments uh, about how freedom of speech helps us to get closer to accurate perception of reality, all depend on the idea that people are actually externalizing their beliefs, their sincere beliefs. And no good argument about freedom of speech I think really does directly attempt to protect the insincere, except for somewhat simple expressive views that have some interest in just saying whatever you feel like. But I don't think those arguments are particularly deep. Uh, And when you really think about what the best arguments for freedom of speech are, they seem to really revolve around the idea that uh, the freedom that is protected is the the protection to say what you sincerely believe. Now, it may be mistaken, that is, our sincere beliefs could be false. And the second part of my argument about the compatibility of regulation of lies with freedom of speech is that many critics of the regulation of lying, I think, confuse lies with false speech. Right. And uh, the protection for saying the false seems to me to be fundamental in a free speech society in order for us to figure out what's true, Uh, we need the help of other people uh, and we need to be able to uh, get our thoughts separate from our minds long enough to uh, take a step back and get some perspective on it to evaluate it. People have to have the ability to say things that end up not being true. Uh, and, And often if they sincerely believe them, it's an important part of their identities. The lie is not necessarily the same thing as the articulation of false speech. So people may sincerely believe the false, and when they articulate false claims, they sincerely believe they're not lying. Um, They're merely mistaken. Mm -hmm. And people can lie and say true things because mentally they're mistaken, uh, and although they believe they're saying something false, uh, when they insincerely report their mistaken beliefs, they may accidentally say true things. So I think there's a divide between false speech and the lie, and this is why I think that regulations on lies need not be what's called content-based, right. uh, and the freedom of speech uh, tradition in the United States is very hostile to regulation of speech on the basis of its content. And the basic point I make is that regulation on the basis of its content uh, really looks at what's in the proposition's. Uh, or other forms of content that a speaker emits. But to regulate the lie is really instead to regulate insincerity, to say to people, you can say anything you like, but what you cannot do is represent it falsely as the content of your mind if it's not what you believe. Uh, and so regulations on sincerity uh, seem very different than content-based regulations because they don't regulate the content of, What we may all consider in the private realm or in the public realm, uh, they rather just make the demand that people engage in sincere speech and not misrepresent their beliefs.
1: Okay, Um, so you do, though, uh, uh, eventually sort of make a case for the accommodation of um, certain kinds of moral failings, and in particular, um, one kind of moral failing that you think it's important, uh, to accommodate, that is, uh, um, to allow to fall outside the scope of regulation, uh, and any sort of, um, serious form of punishment, is what you call the autobiographical lie. Uh-huh. Um, can you tell us about that?
0: Sure. So, in the, in the fourth chapter of the book, I make the argument that, uh, Regulations on lies need not um, violate our strong commitments to freedom of speech, the ones that I've defended in a prior chapter. But what I argue in the fifth chapter is that there may still be important political and moral objections to regulation of lies. Thinking too much about freedom of speech is kind of a form of misdirection. Uh, and so I argue we should really be thinking about different kinds of problems with the regulation of lies. Um, Regulations of expert lies, so when an expert misrepresents uh, about the subject of her expertise, uh, I think that both may be permissible to regulate and will not interfere with freedom of speech. When you misrepresent about something that other people rely upon, uh, I think that regulations of that misrepresentation may not violate the freedom of speech uh, and may be permissible because of our interest in protecting Um, people from harm and in ensuring that experts can be believed but there's a variety of forms of lies that I think it would be improper to regulate but not because of free speech concerns and those are the autobiographical lies uh, often pure lies and what I call a pure lie is a a lie uh, that's not necessarily believed Mm -hmm. Um, so people lie all the time about themselves, what they've accomplished uh, what they think. Uh And sometimes those fall in justified suspended context. Sometimes they are misrepresenting features of themselves to protect their privacy or to engage in etiquette. But a lot of people brag about accomplishments they've never engaged in. Uh, and a famous Supreme Court case called U.S. versus Alvarez involved just such a character who misrepresented whether he had won the Congressional Medal of Honor and whether he was involved in an alleged but false rescue of the hostages in Iran and a variety of other uh forms of uh bragging. And I argue in this chapter that there's a different kind of reason not to prosecute or otherwise regulate these kinds of lies that stems from a notion of political equality uh, and an accommodation of our moral imperfection. Mm -hmm. And what I argue is that our status as equals has a couple of different forms. Uh, One is that we equally have interests in leading, rewarding, fulfilling lives uh, and these equal interests give us claims on each other to ensure the environment is one in which we all have that opportunity. Uh, but we also have kind of an equal status as political equals in which we exercise forms of um, freedom and autonomy and play a role in the joint regulation of our social environment. And that often forms of wrongdoing can jeopardize your full standing as a political equal. Uh, that's why we think, for example, that the commission of certain kinds of crimes uh, makes it justified to limit your liberty, perhaps to incarcerate you, perhaps to deprive you of, say, the status of a trustee over some property if you've misused it or abused it. Some forms of wrongdoing place your status as a political equal with uh, forms of power uh, in some jeopardy. And then the question is, what forms of wrongdoing? And are all forms of moral misbehavior the kind that should jeopardize your status? And I argued in the first couple chapters against this idea in the context of lying and in the context of promissory fidelity, um, that you may owe some forms of promissory fidelity even to someone who's exercised threats and coercion. Uh, that you may owe truthfulness even to the murder at the door with respect to some topics, but not with respect to all topics. And here I argue that um, in thinking about what kinds of wrongdoing jeopardize your status as a political equal, uh, and whether we should reprimand you or in some other way, mark that uh, you are you don't have good standing anymore, we have to ask ourselves, well, what are we equal in virtue of? Are we equal in virtue of all being perfect moral agents, or do we think of each other as equals in virtue of being somewhat imperfect moral agents, um, that we can be equals even while we uh, have some moral failings? And I argue that we should accommodate some small measure of each other's moral imperfections because we all make a variety of forms of mistakes and moral missteps. Uh, and to demand perfection to have the status of a full political equal is, I think, utopian and inconsistent with a realistic understanding of how cooperation creates moral community. Because many autobiographical lies are in my view, the expression of forms of personal insecurity, um, of self-disappointment, of self-doubt, more than an effort to convince someone of the false. Uh, I think there's an argument to be made that one way to express that we tolerate each other's moral imperfections to some extent, that we recognize that we all share and participate uh, in... uh, Practices that are morally imperfect uh, that each of us is a flawed moral agent uh, is that we'll tolerate some of each other's moral imperfections And that as a society we can demonstrate this form of inclusiveness and understanding by not prosecuting or regulating every moral error people make and There are very few moral errors We won't be inclined to regulate because often they cause very significant harm to other people as I argue about lying um, I think lying does damage the public interest by undercutting uh, or fraying at the fabric of public trust. Uh, but pure lies don't harm any particular person because they may not be believed, as many people's bragging forms of autobiographical lies do not. So I think they may damage the public interest and that we have an interest in condemning them. But legally maybe we should accommodate them and use this as an occasion to convey that we're inclusive and we tolerate each other as imperfect agents who nevertheless have equal standing.
1: Great. And you've been very generous with your time. uh, So let me just ask one more question about the book because um, uh, I was uh, – you know, very, uh, deeply in a way intrigued by one of the, the further implications that comes up in the final chapter of the book where you're talking about institutions and institutional roles. Um, or you make, uh, a, a pretty compelling case, uh, for, um, thinking that, um, the role that, that lies play or that the practice of lying plays in, uh, police work. Uh, is unjustified. Um, As I mentioned before we uh, began uh, in earnest, uh, I had always thought that there was a problem with the ways in which police officers not only lied, but were permitted to lie. Um, Can you tell us about, uh, about this aspect?
0: Sure. So I found it very disturbing the more I investigated how the police operate, that it's a part of the standard training of police officers to teach them that you should, you can, and should lie to suspects, uh, as well as witnesses about a variety of features of a purported crime. Uh, so what evidence you have, um, you may sympathize with a suspect and suggest that morally it may have been okay that they, uh, if they did, engaged in a crime that they did, um, although some lies to suspects are legally impermissible, like lying to them about their Miranda rights, for example, a wide range of lies are not only legally tolerated, they're encouraged and part of police training. And this disturbed me a great deal. Um, and it's what uh, impelled me to write the last chapter, which is about institutional exceptions to moral norms. Uh, and the idea that because the police are pursuing a morally good end, uh, that it's permissible for them to to lie to suspects and to lie to witnesses as an effort to elicit the truth from them. And the idea behind this training is that misrepresenting to suspects may trigger them uh, to tell you the truth, whether it's through false sympathy with them or through uh, falsely Suggesting that you have evidence that might convict them um, or falsely representing what the law is with respect to that crime, uh, that it may get them to confess uh, or it may get them to correct the police version of the facts. Um and this bothered me a great deal and I was trying to articulate why it bothers me. Um in the first couple chapters of the book I try to explain why even if you're attempting as an individual to pursue a morally good end like protecting people from crime or releasing yourself from coercion, that nevertheless, there may be some restraints on what mechanisms you can use to do so, that morality guides us even when we're dealing with wrongdoers. In this chapter, I try to explain why that's true for institutions as well, that it's not all holds uh, uh, barred uh, for institutions or for individuals. And the additional argument I give in this chapter about the police uh, is that their role in society is partly determined by an epistemic division of labor. Uh, The police are actually supposed to represent morally good behavior to be a resource we could use to understand what we're required to do from the standpoint of justice, what our relationship to other citizens is, what facts about the world matter to our legal duties. Uh, The police are supposed to be an institution you could trust. And when they lie, They, I think, not only violate interpersonal duties of truthfulness, but they also as being an epistemic resource about those moral duties and relations we have to others. Uh, And even though they have an otherwise good end, they're undercutting their general role by no longer being a reliable source of information uh, about what our responsibilities are uh, and what facts we need to know in order to discharge those responsibilities. I then go on to also make this argument, uh, about the, the use of lying in academic context by academic researchers, uh, because I think universities are also supposed to, uh, functionally and symbolically, uh, be an institution, uh, that emits truth. Uh, and so that as members of the university, we do not have the freedom to misrepresent even for good academic purposes and even to flesh out the truth. So I try to make the same argument about academic researchers uh, as I make about the police.
1: Well, uh, it's it's a very um, uh, compelling uh, a set of considerations and uh, a, a real um, uh, exciting way to end Um and an exciting note to end on uh, what is a, a really, really fascinating book um, so Shana, you've been very generous uh, with your time, and uh, it's been really great to talk to you about uh, speech matters. Um, my u- usual uh, final question uh for interviewees is uh what's on the horizon? Uh, what will you be doing next
0: well um I'm interested in negligence uh, and the degree to which as moral philosophers have uh, perhaps neglected negligence as an important topic of moral concern. So I'm writing a little bit about that, but I'm writing another set of papers related to this book. In this book, I make a distinction between lying and deception, because I think lies are about the misrepresentation of the speaker's mental contents. Uh, They're about insincerity. And deception, I think, is a different but related phenomenon, which you actually... Uh, impart false beliefs into the listener. So -hmm. deception, I think, is about the person who gains false beliefs. Lies are about misrepresenting your own views uh, or beliefs as a speaker. And so I'm writing uh, some uh, things about deception uh, and deceptive advertising and why corporations perhaps should have very strong responsibilities to avoid imparting false beliefs in consumers even when consumers have made mistakes and come to false beliefs through their own errors and reasoning. And so it's about a different kind of epistemic division of labor and deception. So I'm writing on those topics right now.
1: Well, sounds fascinating, and uh, I'll keep an eye out uh, uh, for the fruits of that work, um, which I look forward to. Um, But for now, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us on New Books in Philosophy.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's incredibly generous of you, and it's generous of your audience to to listen. Uh, So thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you. Take care now. You too. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Shauna Shifrin, of the University of California in Los Angeles. We were talking about her new book, Speech Matters on Lying, Morality, and the Law, newly published by Princeton University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host, and this is New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for listening.